Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, you just have to search Faith on Hill on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and then you can subscribe to our Sunday morning services and all of our online content. We also have a live stream on our website, faithonhill.com, that is available as well. Now, uh, that is online. In person, it's summertime, so for the next couple weeks, we are doing lawn chair church. We are out in our field. We have pop-up tents for shade, so if you're like, hey, I don't want to be in the sun, we have shade. Uh, people bring beach blankets, lawn chairs, uh, hanging out. This last Sunday, we all had little ice cream, uh, you know, ice cream sandwiches and cones and things after church, just uh, hanging out, chill, enjoying the weather. And we just kind of do this for the next couple weeks until, you know, you get into end of July, beginning of August, and it gets too hot, and then we'll come back inside. So that's what's going on online and in person. Uh, small groups, most of our small groups are on their summer little pause. People are out camping and vacations and things, so we pause. Uh, and outside, kids are welcome to play. We've got some play structures and uh, things, and they just chill and play and have a good time. Uh, once we're back inside, we have Kids Church Sunday mornings uh, for all of our kids as well. So that's all going on there. We're going to continue our study, uh, the story of Elijah. And if you have a Bible, you can open your Bible app, your actual physical Bible, whatever it is, to Elijah chapter, or sorry, Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 says, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So Elijah, if you weren't with us a couple weeks ago, was just a normal guy out of nowhere. And he saw everything that was broken in his world and his nation, and he began to pray. And after praying, he went to the king, Ahab, who the Bible tells us is the most evil king that the nation of Israel ever had. And he goes to the king, and he says, because I have prayed, it will not rain. There will be no dew until I say so. Because you have not only just defied the Lord, but you have publicly given yourself over to the worship of false gods, the worship of idols. You have done what is evil. You have killed the innocent. And because of this, because you serve the God Baal, who you believe controls the rains and the crops and the cycles of life, I will show you that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, is true, and all other gods are false. And the Lord told Elijah, hey, all right, now you got to go run because the king's going to try to kill you for what you've said, for defying him in this way. And so Elijah's hiding for three years. First, he hides in the wilderness, and then God tells him to go to this area called Sidon, where his enemies are from. And among his enemies, God provided shelter in the home of a widow and her son. And he provided for them miraculously for three years during a time of famine and drought. But now, three years later, the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, has come to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain to the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. He has to say goodbye to this widow and her family who I'm sure he's grown to love and, and be loved by them. But it's time to go. It's time to step out. So he be, gets ready for the journey and heads back to Israel. The famine was severe in Samaria. Now, 
Samaria became the capital of Israel. And if you've read the Gospels, you'll know, uh, maybe you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you remember the story of the woman at the well and how she was from Samaria. Samaria was part of what should have been Israel, but by the time of Jesus, it, was, it wasn't quite Israel. Samaria was where people lived who were Jewish in part, but had intermarried with the people around, and so they were ethnically uh, part Jewish and part not. They had developed a different culture uh, and, and practice of worship. They, they didn't believe that the temple in Jerusalem was where God had prescribed his worship to take place, although that's where it was. Um, they, they valued a different mountain, and uh, they had some different customs and things, and that they were still part of God's people. And Jesus went to them. But at this time, it's not talking about the Samaritans. Samaria was a region within Israel, the same way as we might talk about the south, the Pacific Northwest, or the Northeast, or what have you. Uh, it was also the name of the city that became the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the drought was severe there. Verse 3, Ahab summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in Yahweh. And when Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, that's Jezebel the queen, the wife of King Ahab. While she was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to all the springs and valleys, and maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land that they were to cover. Ahab went in one direction and Obadiah in another. So here we find out that in the king's court, his administration, in his palace, not everyone had given themselves over to the worship of Baal. Not everyone had given themselves over to idolatry and to violence. Some were still faithful in Israel to Yahweh. Obadiah, the palace administrator, he sounds to me like the chief of staff, the right-hand man, second most powerful person in the kingdom after the king, and he has not bowed his knee. He has stayed faithful to God. But things are bad. And there's so little food, grazing lands disappearing in this drought, and they're going to have to kill some of their livestock because they're just going to die anyway. So it's better to kill them while they're still relatively healthy so that you can use their meat for food and you can use their skins uh, for clothes and parchment and different things that were used for. Um, and so we, we don't want to have to do that, though, because back then, somebody's wealth was in part measured by their livestock. You know, we measure wealth by money in the bank, uh, by real estate, by stocks or bonds or whatever. The livestock was like the stocks and bonds. It was like the real estate. And so, hey, I don't want to have to take a big loss here. Let's see if we can find somewhere where there's like an old spring, a well, an oasis that we can take our herds to. So they divided the country in half and Ahab goes one way and Obadiah goes another way. And as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him and bowed to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord Elijah? 
Now, when I was a kid, one of the things I had a real trouble with was the differences in, in the use of the word Lord. Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals in your Old Testament, we've talked about this repeatedly, is the name of God, the Hashem. And is it Yahweh? Is it Jehovah? Is it something else? We're not 100% sure because of uh, the way that vowels were omitted in ancient Hebrew to save space on parchment, and then they stopped saying the name and instead just referred to it as the name, the Hashem, um, and then they lost the pronunciation. So we don't know. But the point is, he calls Elijah my Lord. This is what we might think of in terms of Lord, like, uh, you know, a, a no, noble person, somebody of high rank. Um, you know, if somebody in, in kind of British aristocracy, if you watch like Downton Abbey or Jane Austen films or whatever, uh, you could be a baron, a vice count, an earl, a duke, it doesn't matter. You're all Lord. So, you know, somebody could be the earl of this or the vice count of that, but then they are all, you know, referred to as, yes, my Lord. Uh, of course, think of Darth Vader, Lord Vader, all that kind of stuff. But it's just a symbol, or a, it's a, a honorific, you know, that we use to describe somebody of nobility, of rank, of stature. And so here, Obadiah, second most powerful man in his nation, is bowing down and giving this honorific to Elijah, acknowledging his stature, his position, his authority. And Elijah replies, yes, go tell your master. Elijah is here. We aren't told exactly why it is that uh, Elijah happened to find Obadiah. Maybe Obadiah's part of the kingdom to go check out was the one that was just on the natural route. But it's interesting that these two meet, and we'll get into why that's interesting in a moment. But Obadiah is concerned. Why have I done wrong? What wrong have I done, asked Obadiah, verse 9, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. And I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you if I leave. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of Yahweh? I hid a hundred of Yahweh's prophets in two caves, 50 each, and I supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Verse 15, Elijah says, as surely as Yahweh Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. This is God's word. The chapter starts out by saying, at the end of the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. I want to ask three questions today. Who's the boss? Who's the faithful one? And who's left on the battlefield? We're going to talk about the people that God uses. Who's the boss? In verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Chapter 17 starts out with Elijah just showing up. God didn't speak to him. He didn't receive some divine oracle or vision or dream. He just saw the brokenness in his world. He looked around at the sin of his people and he began to pray. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the New Testament tells us that Elijah was not special. 
He was just a person like you and like me, but he began to fervently pray. I believe that when we pray, the main thing that happens when we pray is that we get ourselves on the same page with God. I do not believe, either from my reading of the Bible or from just living life as a Christian for these past several decades, I do not believe that when I pray, I somehow change God's mind. I believe that as I pray, God is drawing me in so that I might know a bit of his mind. Elijah just began to pray, and as he prayed, he got on the same page, and he understood the things that God wanted done. And he went out to the king, and he said, hey, it's not going to rain until I say so because of your sin and to show that God is true. But now, Elijah's sitting and waiting, and the word of the Lord comes to him. Who is in charge? Who's the boss? When we talk about the people that God uses, one of the great debates that humanity in general has had over the millennia is the concept of free will versus divine sovereignty. Free will means I am the captain of my own destiny. I love the movie Invictus uh, with Matt Damon and Morgan Freeman. It's about the South African rugby team uh, at the end of apartheid. and It's, it's a real inspiring film. It's, a, it's one of the better sports films uh, I've seen in the last few years. But Invictus is a, a poem. And, and in the poem, it says, I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my destiny. It is a poem that expresses human free will, human self-determination. My course is not set by someone else. My decisions are my own. And there have been many over the millennia who have hung and clung to that belief. While others believe in some version of a divine sovereignty. And this can go in different ways. Either that there is a God who determines our path and our steps, or there are forces larger than us, and for lack of a better term, we will refer to them as divine or supernatural. That's one of the, uh, you know, the sort of the themes in Romeo and Juliet. The, the idea of being star-crossed lovers is the idea that our paths, our futures are written in the stars. They're, they're determined in the heavens, and we can't change our stars. We can't change what has been written for us. Books, plays, movies, song, art is devoted to these debates. Am I the captain of my own ship, or is someone else guiding the sails? Even within Christianity, this debate is incredibly strong. Most commonly, you will hear it referred to as Armenianism versus Calvinism. And we don't mean Armenianism as in terms of like Armenia. The Armenians are a people. They are an ethnicity from Armenia. Uh, there is an Armenian church over on the other side of 205. Uh, they're a very interesting people group. They've been through horrific things. The Armenian Genocide, for example. I mean, that's the main thing they've been through. It's, it's terrible. Arminianism is referring to a guy named Joseph Aramis. And Joseph Aramis believed that people, women and men, old and young, had a choice to make. 
Will I follow God or will I not? And he was in response to people like John Calvin, where Calvinism gets its name, who emphasized the sovereign will of God, the idea that God is the one who determines where a person will go. God is the one who calls those who will be his people, and he rejects those he does not want. This debate goes back and forth. I believe firmly that the Bible teaches both divine sovereignty and human free will. The Bible says that God has a plan, that God knows our comings from our goings. We just studied the book of the Revelation, and we see that God knows ahead of time what will happen. At the same time, the Bible says, Choose this day whom you will serve. Peter, in the first gospel message ever preached in Acts chapter 2, said, save yourselves from this wicked and corrupt generation. Turn and make the choice to follow Jesus. The Bible teaches both. And whenever parts of the church want to polarize and get on one side of the debate or the other, I say, no, thank you. I'm just going to be in the middle. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's mysterious. But it's what I see in the scripture. Why am I saying this? Because chapter 17 starts out with an emphasis on Elijah initiating out of free will. He looks around and he sees everything that's going on. He makes the choice to start praying. Chapter 18 starts with the divine sovereignty of God. And God is initiating and active and moving. And Elijah doesn't do anything except that God told him to do it. I believe the Bible teaches both. We cannot save ourselves. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite, my favorite chapter in the Bible. Next week we're going to see my favorite Bible story ever, but Romans chapter 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. It makes it clear, people cannot please God on their own. People cannot choose God on their own. We believe that God is the one who initiated our salvation, that God came to seek and save those who were lost. That's divine sovereignty. And at the same time, I'm going to throw a big word at you, this theological term called provenient grace, the idea that God, through his grace, made a way so that sinful humans, degenerate humans, have the ability to choose one way or the other. That God has made a way so that we may choose this day whom we will serve, so that we may save ourselves from this wicked and perverse generation by choosing Jesus. By responding to Jesus. Oh, Jesus has done all the work. Jesus has initiated everything, but we must choose to respond. I believe both and. And I believe that here in chapter 17 and chapter 18 of the book of 1 Kings, we see both and. Elijah is doing things. He's acting in his own initiative. When the boy that he's staying with in in the house of this widow, when the boy dies... He just gets up and starts praying. He's active and moving, making a choice to turn to God. At the same time, it is God that guides him to that house. It is God that tells him when to get there. It's God who tells him when to go. I believe in both. So somebody's trying to figure out, do I have free will or is there a larger, higher power guiding my steps? Both. I believe... Most people kind of pick one or the other based off of what makes them more comfortable or they believe in both 
in a way of being lazy. If I don't like what's going on in my life, then I can blame a higher power. Oh, you know, God's brought this on me. It couldn't have possibly been me. No, God's brought this on me. And then anything good that happens, oh, I'm so glad I made that choice. It was me. I did that. Did you know that? I believe the Bible says both. That God has divine sovereignty. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He knows what's going to happen. And at the same time, he's given us free will. The people that God use are both the people that he has called and the people who respond to him. If God is using us, it's because he has called us and because we have responded. If God is using you, it's because he's placed you where he wants to use you. But then you and I have a responsibility to say, okay, I see where God has placed me. I see the open moment. I still have to go. I still have to step out. I still have to respond. Both are true. The people that God uses are the people that he calls and the people who respond to him. Both are true. Next is a question of who is God using? You see, we're introduced to this, this fellow Obadiah. Obadiah is the second most powerful person in what we have generally been described as a wicked, evil kingdom, a kingdom that is overrun by violence, that is overrun by corruption, that is overrun by immorality, that is overrun by idolatry, the worship of false gods. And yet, the second most powerful person in that kingdom is a devout believer in Yahweh, the God of the Bible. How many people pray, oh God, give us godly leaders. It's interesting to me. I believe that in our day, I've been in so many prayer meetings over the years, and specifically over the last several years, where I have heard people pray, God, give us godly leaders, and I think they mean Elijah. But they don't have room in their imagination to see that God gave them Obadiah. They don't have room to see that perhaps God has people in place that either we aren't aware of or that we wouldn't like. Maybe you would like Elijah. I like Elijah. He stands up for what he believes. I like Elijah. He won't back down, and he's standing up to Ahab. Obadiah, that guy's a compromiser. He works with Ahab. I can't believe that such a man would be someone that God would use, that such a person would be faithful to the same God that I worship. People pray, oh God, give us godly leaders. Just a couple weeks ago, I read in Oregon Live of a leadership change down in Salem. And this doesn't happen often where I know the person being talked about. I had kind of a weird experience uh, this last year, or not last year, a couple years ago. Uh, somebody I, I graduated from high school with, played football with, I'd known them since elementary school ran for attorney general in their state, and they were the candidate for one of the major parties for attorney general in their state. And let me tell you, that, both, that made me feel old, that there was somebody who I graduated from high school with who was the candidate for a major party, one of the two major parties, for their state for attorney general. That was crazy. That was weird. Well, this couple weeks ago, I read about another person, and they've been put in a major leadership role down in Salem, an important one. One that I, I've been praying, God, could you give us godly leaders in that specific department? And that person 
is now in charge of the whole state for this department. And they love Jesus. And they're a believer. But you know what? I've been in enough prayer meetings that I guarantee that many of the people that I have heard pray, God, give us godly leaders in Salem. They're looking for an Elijah, and God gave us an Obadiah. That the person who is likely to get into a position of authority or influence in Salem, in Washington, D.C., is probably not Elijah. It's probably Obadiah. And yet both are faithful to God. Both of them refused to bow their knees to false gods. Both of them did what was right. They were just doing different things. Both were living faithfully. It was just looking differently. It was lived out differently. There are groups of Christians who look at other groups of Christians and say, those people are compromisers. Those people have given themselves over to sin. They're not the true believers. We're the faithful few. And I guarantee there were people in Israel, there were people in the southern kingdom of Judah, there were people around who would have looked and said, oh, Elijah is the one who's staying faithful to God, not compromisers like Obadiah. And yet Obadiah was there putting his life on the line. Elijah was safe. He's out of the country. God's got him in sanctuary. Obadiah lives every day with the fear that the king will find out, the queen will find out, somebody will snitch on him. He's like, he's like the person who's hiding Jews in Nazi Germany. He's like the person who's sheltering, you know, like the Hotel Rwanda kind of situation. They're sheltering their neighbors so that they won't be massacred. He's that person. He is sheltering people who are on a kill list because he will not allow that evil to happen. Every day he lives with the fear that he will be handed over. And he lives with the derision the scorn from other believers who should recognize him as a brother but see him as a traitor. Both were faithful in different ways. Skipping ahead into next week's verses, but Elijah meets Ahab and all of Ahab's crew and in Verse 22, Elijah says to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. I like Elijah. I respect Elijah. In many ways, I want to be more like Elijah. I do not respect him in this. And I am worried that I am too much or have been over the years too much like him in this way. Elijah is myopic. He has tunnel vision. Myopathy is something that happens in your eyes. It's a, it's a legit physical ailment or condition. You know, think of your eyes as binoculars, right? And, and if you, you look through them, but imagine putting like your hands up to your eyes like binoculars and then slowly closing your hands so that you can see less and less. And there are people who have myopathy in their eyes and their, their vision begins to shrink and shrink. And they don't just lose peripheral vision like with glaucoma, but they, they lose forward vision as well. And they can only see a little bit out of their eyes. So when we say someone is being myopic, we mean that they're not just limited in their vision, but they're, they're short-sighted. They're not seeing everything. Elijah comes up and says, I'm the only one left. He's just been told by Obadiah that there are a hundred other prophets 
whom Obadiah is hiding, who have not bowed their knee, who have stayed faithful. And that's the one that Obadiah is hiding. I guarantee there were other prophets who were hidden by other people. There were other people who were faithful to God who had maybe had to flee like Elijah. And for whatever reason, they hadn't gotten the word to come back. And here's Elijah, kind of full of himself here, if I'm going to be honest. I'm the only one left who's on the battlefield. Oh, it's just me. I'm the only one still fighting. And I do not believe that. You know, if you go ahead, we'll get to this story in a few weeks. We'll come back to this for sure. But if you go ahead and, and you see that Elijah is just despondent, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who hasn't bowed to you. I'm the only one. And, and, and God just says, no. What are you doing here? I, I, I have others who have not turned. I have others who have not bowed their knee. I have others who have been faithful. In chapter 19 of the book of 1 Kings, verse 18, God says, I have 7,000 people in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him, meaning that they, they didn't go and worship on the high places. They didn't give themselves over to the violence, the corruption, the immorality that comes along with the worship of Baal and the other false gods. Obadiah knew about a hundred other people who had been faithful. God tells Elijah in a few chapters that there are over 7,000 in the nation who have not bowed their knee. And there are others who more who come back as Elijah's ministry has effect. But Elijah's sitting there going, I'm the only one left. I'm just the faithful few. It's us four and no more. Friends, we are not alone. I'm speaking to believers right now. We can look around our world and they will tell us, the statisticians, the researchers will tell us that church in America is on the decline. And that may be true, but that does not mean faithful people in America are on the decline. That does not mean that those over there, the Obadiahs that we may not value, aren't doing what God has called them to do. Obadiah was called by God to stay there next to Ahab. Obadiah was called by God to shelter these prophets. Obadiah did what he was able. He was placed divinely right in that key position of influence and authority so that he could do this work. And he responded to God's sovereign placement and said, yep, I'm going to do what is right. And we can look around and we can tell ourselves, oh, that person over there is compromised. That person over there has rejected God. It's just us left. And we are fools if we do that. We ignore the word of God if we do that. We dishonor godly women, godly men who have not bowed their knee. And what they're doing might look different than what we're used to. It might not be what we expect, but they're doing what God has given them to do. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that we can be encouraged that God is working. He is always working, even when we do not see it. Even when the night is darkest, 
Even when the hour seems like it is the last one and we are, we are done for, God is not done working. You might think you're the only one. You might think at your job you're the only person. You might think at your school you're the only person. You might think in your family you're it. And you may not be recognizing the Obadiahs that are out there. You may not be seeing the hundred prophets in the caves. You may not be seeing the 7,000 who have not bowed their knee. God is still working and still moving in this place and in this moment. Now, that's a word to believers, a word of encouragement, a word of hope, and an exhortation to recognize our sisters and our brothers and not treat them as enemies. I believe Elijah was wrong in how adversarial he was to Obadiah. Now, you might say, I'm, well, I am, I, I, that's for believers, but I'm just checking this out. I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm not sure about faith. What does this have to do with any of that? Let me say this. Elijah, as I said at the beginning, was just a regular person like you and me. And these were regular people just like us. And we should recognize the day that we live in. We live in a day where good is evil and evil is called good. And I mean that on all sides. There are people who call what the Bible calls sinful, hatred, bigotry, rebellion, and they call it good. There are people who call the immorality that the Bible calls evil, they call it good. There are people who look at the corruption that the Bible says is wrong and they say, oh, that's just life. We live in the same day of wickedness. Violence, corruption, hatred, idolatry, immorality, these are all things that we see in our culture and our world around us today. Old and young, right and left, there is no group, position, or polarization that is not guilty of these sins. And yet God is still working. And he is still calling people out of this darkness and into light. And you may be saying, hey, I'm just checking things out. But you know what? It seems like Christianity's on the down. And I don't know if I want to be part of a group that's on the down. And I would say this, friend. It doesn't matter what's happening around us because we know through history, through personal experience, and through the testimony of the Holy Spirit that God is still working and he is still moving. And if you look at what's going on right now and think that's the end of the story, I'd encourage you to go back and check out our Bible studies in the book of the Revelation. It is not. Jesus wins. And you may be, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you may be like Elijah and say, like, ah, that's it. It's over. Not with Jesus. Not a long shot. Jesus wins. So, be encouraged we're going to see how God begins the turnaround there uh, for Elijah and for Israel in the next, chapter, or the next part of the chapter as we get into that next week. God bless you. We'll see you this week. We've got podcasts and all kinds of stuff online. Some of our small groups are still meeting. Uh, if you have any questions about anything going on, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. And we'll be back together next Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. as we continue to study the Word of God so that we can know Jesus better.